Amen. Derek Redman. Derek Redman was an Olympic runner who told the story about a day that changed his life. In 1992, Derek was a 400-meter record holder. Derek was at the peak of his athletic abilities on the day he took his starting line position during the Barcelona semifinals in 1992. His father, Jim, was there to watch his Olympian son compete. And this is how Derek tells the story. When Derek took his place on the starting blocks, he felt good. He won the first two rounds without breaking sweat, including posting the fastest time in the first round heats. He was confident, and when the gun went off, he got off to a good start. He got into his stride running the first turn, and he, he felt comfortable. Then he heard a popping sound. He kept on running for another two or three strides. Then he felt the pain. He thought he'd been shot, but he recognized the agony. The pain was excruciating. He had snapped his hamstring. He looked around to see where the rest of the runners were. He was on the ground, and he could remember thinking, if I can just get up and catch them, I can still qualify. But the pain was intense, and there he was, lying on the track in tears. You see, four years earlier, there was another issue. He was at the Olympics in 1998, except that time, he didn't get to start. He had an Achilles injury, and he had the letters next to his name, D-N-S. stands for did not start. And here he was, four years later, on the ground in the Barcelona Olympics in 1992. We're going to get back to that story later, or at least at the, the end of that story. And uh, we're going to skip over to our, our story of the prodigal son this morning. It's likely that many of you have heard the story of the prodigal son, or at least you've heard the term prodigal. But as we go over it today, I hope you will hear it in a new light. I hope something will come to light that you didn't see before. Parables are stories that teach a lesson. They're meant to teach a truth that may not be recognized. Jesus used parables throughout his ministries. Um, one commentator says that one-third of Jesus' teachings were done by way of parable. So the parable this morning um, was in Luke 15, 11, and it's preceded by two other parables that he told in the prior 10 verses. We're not going to read those parables, but I just want to tell you a little bit about them. One, there was an audience throughout this, the, all these parables. There was the tax collectors, there was Pharisees, sinners, there were scribes there. And the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees were the religious establishment of the day, and they were complaining that Jesus was associating with these tax collectors and sinners. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he tells them some parables. And in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 15, verses 1, we have the parable of the lost sheep. You may remember the story. There's man has 100 sheep. 99 sheep are left behind. He goes desperately in, sh in search of one sheep that goes missing. He finds the one sheep. He puts that one sheep on his shoulders, and he heads back home. He gets home, and they rejoice. And Jesus boldly tells, at the, end of this, at the end of this parable, Jesus boldly tells his audience this. And he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Hold on to that verse. There's another parable, and it starts in verse 8. In verse 8, we see the parable of the lost coin. We have a woman who has 10 coins. One coin goes missing. 10% of her wealth goes missing. And we have her in a desperate search 
to find that 10% of her wealth. The wealth is found. There is rejoicing. And Jesus says about that lost coin, he says, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, to properly understand our parable this morning, it's helpful to zoom out a little bit and see how it fits within the context of the other two. That's why I mentioned those parables. In our parable this morning, we're not talking about sheep. In our parable this morning, we're not talking about a coin. We're not talking about an animal. We're not talking about 10% of someone's wealth. In our parable this morning, we're talking about a beloved son. Now, in our parable this morning, we see dark seasons. Dark seasons of life followed by very bright seasons. Or, or you may be familiar with that. Dark seasons followed by bright seasons. Dark seasons of life can, be, uh, can take up many different shapes and sizes, but they're all very painful. Here in our text, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spill the beans nice and early and just tell you what's going on. Um, our Heavenly Father has always been recognized as the earthly father of this parable. So we see Christ as the father. The younger son in this parable is a picture. He's a picture of a rebellious sinner who turns from God and runs into open worldliness. The older son is a picture of a works-righteous Pharisee. Remember, those Pharisees are still present when he's telling this parable. The older son is a self-righteous sinner who is outwardly many things. Maybe he's outwardly, outwardly righteous in the church, but inwardly without faith. Both sons are lost. Both sons most must return. One does return, and the other, we don't know. I think the parable should be renamed. I think it should be renamed the lost two sons and their father. But since struggling seminary students don't get to name large sections of the Bible, it will stay the parable of the lost son. First, the father. Let's talk about him. The father had an estate. He had hired workers. He had enough assets, right? He was able to give a significant amount of way. Expensive clothes, rings, food, fattened calf, right? He had that. The father is the par in, the, in this parable is the fulcrum. For those of you that like simple machines, he's the fulcrum here. He's the access. He's the center. The two sons rise and fall depending on their proximity to this access. Now, in the beginning of the parable, we have this younger son. And here's what he says. Father, he says, give me my share of the estate. Now, we should note that the problem with this younger son doesn't start after he's gone off to squander the money. The problem with this younger son starts here in the father's presence. The younger son has everything he could want, and he has it right here. He's got his protection, his food, his clothing, servants. Why would you leave and go somewhere where there's none of that? I'll tell you why. It's the story of the Old Testament Israel disobeying God, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The story of mankind. It's a story of a child who was raised in a Christian home and then wanders away. It's a story of a child who was baptized here, maybe in this church, and then goes off to college, and you wonder, what happened to them? Right? Essentially, this younger son, he's got a better plan in mind. And he says, I've got this, Dad. I no longer need you anymore. Dr. Lamerson, who was the, the former president of Knox Theological Seminary, he said, we have to understand how offensive even the request of the younger son to the father is. Essentially, he asked, he says, Father, I wish you were dead. You're going to die anyways, so give me my share 
of the estate now. This young man's heart is no longer with his father. Either he doesn't realize or he doesn't care how fortunate he is to be able to have a father that's willing to look over his shoulder at this younger son. He makes an intentional, willful decision to get out from being under his father's eye of protection. Instead of, instead of this younger son seeing his, father, his father-son relationship as a benefit, he sees it as a burden, and he just can't bear the weight of it. In the end of verse 12 in your text this morning, we learn that the father does distribute the assets. We don't see an objection by the father. In fact, that doesn't appear to be the point of the section at all. No, the younger son doesn't deserve anything, but the father gives it away anyway. Commentator Lenski notes that God will often give without objection, even to the sinner's life, health, faculties of mind, earthly wealth, a thousand advantages. And he gives so much that we just take it for granted. You get up in the morning and you hear the birds chirping. We take it for granted. We get up in the morning, we see the, the sun's rays breaking through the clouds, and we take it for granted. And we, we see the, our friends and our family and the roof over our head. So much we're given. This, the younger son, he's got all of his needs met, and yet he will go his own way. He knows better. He, he thinks that apart from his father, he will be better served. And, and that's a huge mistake. And so many make the mistake. It's been the case since the beginning. So many people are ruined by pride, by this foolish ambition to be independent from God. At God and, and, and Adam and Eve in the, in the garden said, don't eat that fruit. And, and there they went, you know, and they separated themselves from God. Maybe that's you. Do you, do you know better? Have you tried to venture away? How's, how's that working out? Well, we can say two things about that. One is we know how it works out, and we're going to get to that. And two, we know there's a better way, and we're going to get to that as well. I want you to see that there's a better way. Um, In verses 13, it reads, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. This young man just drained the whole bank account, sucked it dry. Um, Having spent everything in this son's case is really bad, and it's really good. It's really bad from his perspective because he no longer has no more money to spend on foolish, fleeting, worldly desires. And there's no more money. There's no more food. He doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. And there's a famine. And famines back then aren't like famines nowadays. There is no stimulus check back at this time. There's a famine, people starve, and they die. And so what does he do? Well, he goes to work for a pig farmer, verse 15. He's so poor, he's likely eating the same food the pigs are eating. Now, you may say, well, what's wrong with with feeding pigs? Well, we need to understand that feeding pigs would not be a desirous job for a young Jewish boy for many reasons. One, you're not supposed to be around pigs, never mind caring for them, right? It would be wrong. So from a a spiritual perspective, physically, he's probably eating the same food that the pigs are eating. Think about that. And uh, it's torturous mentally to his psyche because he would think back to a time when he had everything. He would think back to that. And here he is in the time where he has nothing eating pigs' food. 
Um, I said the fact that he had spent everything is good as well. Well, it's good because he now has no more money to spend on the, the, the worldly fleeting desires that he was spending his money on. Now he will have to experience what it's like when you ha- no longer have someone in your corner looking out after you. you know, he no longer has someone to depend on right next to him. Commentator Lenski writes that this young man begins to be in need, not only because he had lost his inheritance, but now because he had no inner soul treasure. And there it is. He had no comfort for his soul at this time. He had lost everything, yet what he really needs is Christ. He needs Christ. You see, your portion of the estate will not sustain you. Your soul will feel a void within it that cannot be satisfied until Christ is reigning in it supreme. It may seem like a a broken record to hear a a preacher up here on a Sunday morning saying, let go of this world and hold fast to Christ. It may seem like a broken record, but we can never hear it enough. Nothing produces the kind of real joy, peace, and happiness that Christ will. But yet, we so too easily let the trash of this world consume our minds and take center stage in our hearts. Why Why do we do that? I was teaching a Bible study once, and I said, what if someone came into your house, another man came into your house and said, John, Joe, Steve, I need you to step aside. I am now the man of this house. What do you do? Well, of course, everyone in the Bible study got upset. They got angry. Get out of my house. It's my house, right? But yet so often we let the trash of this world come into our house and do the same and consume our minds and our hearts and our thoughts and our attitudes and take the center where Christ belongs. Now, I think what's important to think about is that this world has so many shiny things to offer. You know, so many shiny, shiny things that we can get wrapped up in. I hope I get that pay raise so I can buy that new car. I hope I make enough money so I can get that truck. Once my marriage is intact, I'll be all set, right? We focus on the 70 or 80 years, and we forget about the billions and trillions of years in eternity that comes after this. And if you think that anything, that anything other than Jesus can give you the purpose and fulfillment that your heart desperately desires, then you've missed it. You've missed it. Your heart doesn't need to climb to the next rung of the corporate ladder. Your heart needs a life that's bigger than the the one that this world has to offer. But too often we let the stuff of this world creep into our lives. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, this kid here, he should have saved some of it. He should have invested some of it. He should have put some of this money in the mutual funds, right? But the point is, he rejects his relationship between himself and his father. And at that point, he goes to pursue a pointless life. Now, this young man's not alone. He's not alone in breaking this, this relationship with his father. He's not alone in pursuing this pointless life. So many today do the same. He's in a bad spot. He's made some wrong choice. But remember, there's a better way, right? Matthew 28, 11 says, it says, tells us to come to Christ with our lives. And it says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those words come to me. Leon Morris, he says, the invitation is extended to all the troubled. Come to me, you who are weary 
and burdened. We get a little glimmer of hope in this parable, and it comes in verses 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many, how many of my father's hired servants have had food to spare, and here I am starving to death? This word, these words, when he came to his senses, is important. Or, in, or when he came to himself, um, in the Hebrew Aramaic, it's an expression that means repented. It is as if he is saying, God, I have sinned against you. I have put a wedge in our relationship. I have come to my senses, and I am con- convicted, and I need your forgiveness. It's a wonderful place to be. Wonderful place to be. This young man realized the hurt that he has caused, and he's repentant. And, and that's important. You see, he can't earn his way to forgiveness from the Father. It has to be mercifully granted by the Father. I have a friend who I worked with in the hospital many years and talked to him about the gospel, and he says, Josh, I just want to clean up a few areas of my life, and then I will come. Like there's something he could do to make Jesus love him more, like something he could clean up. You see, the reality is that Romans 5.8 says, God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did God die for us? After we cleaned up the mess? No. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Last week, my, my daughter Hope asked me, what do you want for Father's Day? And it was, it was an interesting conversation, and she was like, well, I don't want to buy another mug. We don't have enough room for mugs in the cabinet. There's too many mugs. And uh, that whole conversation went on. But uh, the point is, if, I'm speculating here, but if I could ask this father, what is it you want for Father's Day? If I could ask him, and I can't, what do you think he would say? He may say, now if I, he may say, well, I want my son. I want him to come to his senses, and I want him to come back to me. 1 Peter 3, 9, it writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our Heavenly Father is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in verse 20 of our text, it reads, And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. There is a sense that his father had been waiting a long time. The fact that his father sees him while he's a long way off indicates that he may have been patiently waiting, like a a Red Sox fan before 2004, just waiting, thinking maybe this will be the year it happens. Uh, I'm speculating here, but maybe his his father frequented that roof. Maybe he went up on the roof just looking out, waiting for his son, right? And then in verse 20, it says, And he was filled with compassion, and he ran to his son, throwing his arms around him and kissed him. Now, running in our culture means nothing, right? People run for everything. They run to the mailbox. They run for everything. But back then, running in their culture meant something. Men wore robes, and it was seen as undignified, if you would just pick up and run like that. So it was an undignified thing to do. Think about that. Father giving up his dignity, running towards his son, who has come to his senses and repented. There's a, there's a, this is a great picture of forgiveness in the New Testament. It's a picture of a son coming to, coming to his senses and a father running. 
And, and, and the son said to him in verses 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice the difference. We started the parable with the younger son, Father, give me my share of the estate. And now you see a changed heart. Father, I have sinned and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's a wonderful changed heart. I want to stop and I want to just note that many of us want to associate with the parable. Many of us do. I'm just like him. Yep, check that box. Just like the parable. parable, Just like the, the prodigal. But in many ways, we're, we're more often like the older son. And as you read through the text, you will see that he is just as lost. He's just as problematic. He, he doesn't squander the inheritance, but now you see the response of the older son. I want you to see this in your text. It's ugly. Verses 25 through 28. Now the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, or pleaded with him in the CSB. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Now, why would he be upset? Well, the older son hadn't squandered the inheritance, for one. He hadn't stayed, he had stayed behind. He took orders from the father. He kept the property intact. He hadn't defiled himself with prostitutes. He hadn't done any of those things. It is if he is saying, Dad, I followed all the rules. I deserve to celebrate with my friends. I put the work in. I deserve not that older son of yours. He's wandered off to the wrong side of the tracks. And you're going to have a feast for this ingrate? You've got to be kidding me. And this older son, under all this anger, what he's essentially saying is, this younger son doesn't deserve the grace of God that you're giving him. I do. That's what he's saying. But in reality, and this is the point, what we need to come to terms with is that we are all sinners. No one is deserving of the grace of God. None of us in this room is deserving. We've all wandered off to the wrong side of the tracks. The older brother thought that all of his righteous deeds would earn him a ticket into the kingdom, but the kingdom doesn't work that way. Christ doesn't work that way. I had a, I had a Hebrew professor once, and he would use this made-up Latin term, and it was called sola bootstrapa. And I come to really dislike that term. And what it meant was, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and learn this. And you would hear that term all the time. Sola bootstrapa, sola bootstrapa. And, uh, and it, it worked for Hebrew, fine. You got to learn it. But here it doesn't work. In the kingdom it doesn't work. There is no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps with Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells you it, it, there isn't. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved, right? And this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Romans chapter 12, it's a text that's been living in my brain lately, and it's, it's Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, and Paul says, no, 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 no. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. How? How, Paul? How do I do that? And he says, by the mercies of God. 
Oh God, have mercy on us. When we act like this older brother, thinking we deserve anything at all. When we look at someone else's life and we scour, that job that he got, I was supposed to get that job, and we grumble. That Disney vacation, I was supposed to be able to take my family on, but I can't, and we grumble, right? The health, I'm battling with ailments and and illnesses, and that person's healthy. It seems like they have all the healthy genes and I have all the sick genes. And we grumble, right? And, and what we say when we grumble like this is, all you have done for me, God, is not good enough. I want more. I deserve more. You see, the fattened calf, it wasn't to celebrate the son's sin. It wasn't. The fattened calf was to celebrate the return of the son, the younger son. And there was an empty seat at the table, and there was food there, and that empty seat was there for that older son. He was able to come in, and he was able to have some of that fattened calf, but he wouldn't come in. The food was getting cold. He wouldn't eat. Christian, what greater thing is there than Christ's blood shed for us? Christ has taken your place. I've worked in a a hospital for over 16 years, and many of you know that, and I've seen terrible end-of-life situations, but every once in a while, I get a little glimmer of hope. A pastor walks in the room with his Bible, and he's talking about the person in in the hospital bed, and he says, this person, this young man, this elderly man, um, this, this elderly woman, they knew Christ. They knew their Christ. They had a relationship with Christ, and I think what better, what better words could be said about you at the end of your life as you sit there in that hospital bed? Pastor Bruce last week said that, and I can steal his quotes here. He said that, that the life of the Christian is the most of hell that the Christian will ever know. And I resounded, that resounded with me. He said, the Christian doesn't fear death, but he embraces it. Come to the feast. Come to the feast that Christ has prepared for you. I started with the story of the Olympian, Derek Redman. There he was, lying on the track in pain, hamstrings snapped, crying, in tears, on the ground. He got up somehow, hobbled 50 meters to the 200-meter mark, looked around. He realized it was all over. He saw that everyone else had crossed the finish line, but he didn't like to give up on anything, and he decided that he was going to finish that race if it was the last race he ever did. So he got up, started hobbling, tears in his eyes. Doctors were trying to stop him. Officials were trying to stop him. He was shooing some, everybody off. He was saying, I'm having none of that. I'm finishing this race. Then with 100 meters to go, he became aware of someone else on the track. Many of you may know this story. Jim Redman, his dad, was walking toward, was, was watching from the stands. He was making his way over to join his son on the track. Jim ran onto the track. Derek at first didn't realize who it was. His dad said, Derek, you don't need to do this. Derek said, Dad, I want to finish. Get me back in the semifinal. Jim said, okay. Well, we started this thing together, and now we'll finish this thing together. And Jim managed to get Derek to, st- to try to stop running and walk. And, and Derek, uh, Jim kept saying to Derek, you're a champion. You don't need, you have nothing to prove. And they hobbled over to the finish line, arms in each other. Derek and his dad, the man who supported his career since he was seven years old. There was a standing ovation. 65,000 people got up that day. 
But what resounded with me with that story was what Derek said about those letters. He said, it, he said four years earlier, he had those letters DNS next to his name. Did not start. But I, he said, I would not, would not have these letters DNF. He said, I would not have the letters did not finish next to my name in Barcelona. And he didn't. Paul in, in Romans 3.10 he says, we are all sinners, Paul says. In Romans 3.10, he says, no one is righteous. It literally says, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. But God, but God, he knows you're in need of a Savior. Will you place your faith, your trust in this Savior, Jesus you see, there's no work that we can do to make it right. For it is by grace, not your works. Grace, unmerited favor, undeserved. I want to end by circling back, and I jumped over this verse, but I want to circle back with this text, verses 22 through 24. It reads, if you have your Bibles, it reads, But the Father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. A sinner has repented and cast his life on Christ. That's a reason to celebrate. Yes, oh, what a joyful time it is when men and women throw off the empty, fleeting pleasures of this world, repent of their sins, and put on Christ. Some of you have been praying for so long for others to come to know this joy. Maybe you've been praying for 10 years. I heard a story a couple weeks ago about a family that was praying for a grandmother for 10 years, and she finally came to faith. Maybe others have been praying for you to come to faith, to know Christ, and you sit here today. I invite you to know Jesus as your personal Savior. Don't let another day go by, for tomorrow is not guaranteed. The prodigal son in this parable paid nothing. He paid nothing for his ability to return to his father. He came to his senses. He repented of his sins. He got up. He went back to his father. And his father didn't give him the cold shoulder. He ran to his son. And they celebrated. If you have not run to Jesus, if you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to come. Come to your son's senses as this young man did and run to him. Let's pray.